Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Where in the world does John Newton, who wrote that hymn, where does he find that kind of confidence and assurance? In fact, as he originally wrote that hymn, the next verse even grew into offering assurance to those singing. So verse 4, as Newton wrote it, is this, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And then the next verse that we sing, that you just sang, is that when we've been there 10,000 years verse. But actually, Newton didn't write that verse. It was added later. His fifth and then sixth verse says this. Listen to his confidence and his assurance in Christ. He says, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. Think of the confidence and the assurance that we have when we sing those words. The Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, tells us that, that through the work of Christ, that, that is his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father's right hand, through the work of Christ, we can have complete confidence and assurance of pardon. Our sins have been forgiven. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Full assurance of faith. God loves to give his children this gift. And it is a, it is a precious thing. It is a source of deep peace and, and consolation and he wants us to have it. Full assurance of faith. Like most things in the Christian life, assurance is something that, that actually needs to be cultivated and, and it grows deeper and stronger over time. Um, it's a gift that God gives to us. Uh, according to Newton, he, he gives it to us gradually and through frequent testing and trials. So John Newton, who was a pastor in England eventually, at the end of his life, he said this, Assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof. That means experiential, experiential proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. 
when we have been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, have given up all hope, have been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety. And when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply to the word and power of God beyond all uh, and against all appearances. And this trust, when habitual and strong, bears the name of assurance, for even assurance has degrees, Newton said. In other words, God's way of of growing the assurance that we have in Christ is by putting us through numerous and varied hardships. The process is designed to be hard. Trials are the way that faith is proven, how it is refined, how it is strengthened. That's why James will write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, there are other ways in which the Lord will will grow our assurance, but clearly, Trials and hardships are one of the key and and primary ways. In fact, every week I I pray that prayer, (laughs) that that long prayer in the middle. Um, The prayer where we pray for various concerns that we have as a church. We're commanded to do this, and it's good for us to do this together. One of the reasons I started to call that prayer the, the prayer of confession and assurance of pardon in the bulletin is to not only express our collective repentance, we as a people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's also to build up our faith and assurance Not only has the Lord forgiven us our trespasses, as He has promised, but also to remind us, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Well, in the opening of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives thanks for this, the newfound and, and yet vibrant and even active faith of the Thessalonian saints. And in so doing, he also explains to them, and therefore, of course, to us, the basis of their assurance of pardon, the basis of the assurance that they have of their salvation. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. And we're going to look at verses 2 to 5 this morning. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Lord in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has also gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's stop here and pray. Father, I pray that, um, that you would feed us from your word this morning. I pray that you give us what we need. And we acknowledge that our greatest need is to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in these next couple of verses, really beginning in verse 2, the, the thankfulness that we can read there, that's common in Paul's letters to the churches. Um, he often follows his blessing of grace and peace that we looked at last week. He, he follows that often with a, with a genuine expression of thanksgiving to God for the, for the church. And in, in this case and in many others, the church that, that the Lord even used him to plant. This entire letter is a letter of his thankfulness to God for the Thessalonians' faith. You can sense Paul's gratitude really throughout the first three chapters especially. And it begins with this one long sentence that runs all of verses 2 to 5. And in that sentence, Paul is rejoicing over the proofs of their salvation, their, the proof of life or eternal life. And when you sit down and read the letter in one sitting like we did last week, you really get the sense that that Paul had been concerned with the reality of their faith, especially since he had been forced to, to flee in the midst of a very difficult trial that, in, that involved even the arrest and subsequent finding of, of some of the leaders of their church, one named Jason, and then it says some of the other Thessalonian brothers. Paul was very aware that Jesus had told the parable of the sower, which goes like this, Matthew 13, verse 3 says, Jesus taught a, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, which group would the Thessalonians belong to? When the intense heat of persecution started to beat down on them, would they wither? Would the thorns grow up and, and choke out their faith? Paul was eager to know. And when Timothy arrived with, with his report, he, he quickly wrote this letter to them, thanking God for proof of his grace in their lives. Paul had no doubt that the Lord was using the Thessalonian church 
And he also uses this greeting of, of thanksgiving, really, to accomplish three different goals. So first, he desires to, to reestablish his relationship with these saints. See, Timothy had brought his report. If you, if you flip over to chapter 3, just listen to verse 6. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul had been concerned. Would, would they think that he had abandoned them in their hour of need? Were they angry with him? Were they angry with God and, and therefore doubting the message of the gospel? No. Turns out they weren't. And you can sense Paul's relief in this letter. And so he works to, to reaffirm and, and reestablish his relationship with them. And then secondly, he's implicitly, so he's implying this, but he is exhorting and encouraging them to live up to the praise that he is offering up to God on their behalf. So for example, look at what he says in verse 3. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, now that he's heard the reports of their, of their, of, uh, their faithfulness and he has thanked God for this, this outworking of their faith in their lives, it, it's not like they can stop now. It, it's not like they can dial back their labor of love just a little bit ease up on their steadfastness of hope. So implied here, as he says this, is that they need to continue in these things. They need to carry on. And even, he says this explicitly in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is what they're doing. Verse 3. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Keep on. And then Paul's third goal, really, in this introduction is to open the door to... There's four major issues that he's going to address throughout this letter. Really, the rest of the letter. Namely, he will talk about his own integrity in his ministry toward them. He will talk about the persecution that they've endured for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. He will talk about, thirdly, how they, will then, how they should then live in light of all of this. And then finally, Christ's return. But all of that comes after Paul expresses his profound thankfulness for the Thessalonian church. And this thankfulness is directed to God, and it is rooted in prayer. It's rooted in prayer. Look again at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. It is vitally important for us 
to understand what Paul is doing here. He is, he is rooting the Thessalonians' very salvation in the work of the grace of God. So, so commenting on Ephesians 2.8, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Commenting on Ephesians 2.8, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the wisdom of God devised the plan. The power of God executes in us the work of salvation. The immutability of God preserves it and carries it on. In fact, all the attributes of God are magnified in the salvation of a sinner. But at the same time, the text is most accurate since grace is the fountainhead of salvation and is most conspicuous throughout. Grace is to be seen in our election, for there is a remnant according to the election of grace, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Grace is manifestly revealed in our redemption, for ye know therein the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is utterly inconceivable that any soul could have deserved to be redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The more thought, the mere thought is abhorrent to every holy mind. Our calling is also of grace too, for he hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Salvation is all of grace. So yes, these, these saints of God in Christ have, have heard and, and they have responded to the gospel with repentance and belief, but even this is the work of God in our hearts and he alone gets the glory and the thanksgiving. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, I suppose, Paul could have congratulated himself for successfully establishing the church at Thessalonica. He could have expressed his thankfulness toward Silvanus and Timothy for their tireless efforts in helping him plant the church. He could have thanked the Thessalonian saints for their belief and, and continued assembling together. I suppose Paul could have written chapter 1 to read like an acknowledgement section of a book, which most people skip, right? But he didn't. Instead, he knows to whom all thanks is due. God alone. All that has been accomplished at Thessalonica has been accomplished by the Lord. Now he will go on to praise the people for their faith, love, and hope, for their uprightness even in the face of persecution, for their evangelistic efforts, and even for their conversion. Yet all of those things are ultimately due to God's sovereign choice and work. So Paul is giving thanks because of what he prayerfully recalls about these saints. And he does this. That is, that is, he prays for them constantly, without ceasing. The very thing that he will call them to do in chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Paul is regularly, habitually praying for the saints of Thessalonica. This is actually one of the primary tasks of the elders of a church. The apostles made this clear in Acts chapter 6, right? Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So prayer is the work of ministers. But it's not only the work of ministers. In fact, I will argue that prayerlessness in the life of any Christian leads to thanklessness. Prayerlessness leads to thanklessness. The person who does not pray is not thankful. And the person who is not thankful does not pray. And the reason for this is actually pretty simple. Pride. I don't need God. I did this all on my own. Consider Romans chapter 1. Just verses 20 and 21 says this, For his invisible attributes namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's, that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Turn over to Daniel chapter 4. Just for a moment, Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Pride and thankfulness are antonyms. They're opposed to each other. But thankfulness, thankfulness cultivates prayer, which in turn cultivates thankfulness. See, thankfulness arises in our hearts when we reflect, for example, on how God has answered our prayers in the past. And this, and this attitude of, of thanksgiving, it also grows and builds when we worship. When we genuinely worship, when we come together and sing of God's amazing grace, even if it wasn't planned, when we reflect on who God is and what He has done, on His person and work, when we consider God's faithfulness, His provision for us, both materially and spiritually, 
Additionally, thankfulness also arises in our hearts when we confess our sins and are assured of our pardon. When we are reminded that Christ has removed our guilt by taking it upon himself and going to the cross and by overcoming the penalty uh, by raising from the dead. See, to, to use what has sort of become a 21st century cliche, thankfulness is actually a gospel issue. It really is. Show me a person who is not thankful to the Lord, and I will show you someone who is not currently believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is rooted in prayer. I've already touched on this a little bit, but it is also rooted in assurance. It is rooted in assurance. Look again at verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving comes from recognizing the evidence of Christian living. A proof of life. Now we can see here that there's there's actually an immediate and then an ultimate cause of Paul's thanksgiving. I've touched on this already. So, so in the immediate, Paul focuses on the work of the Thessalonians. He continually remembers these three traits that are true of these saints, beginning with their work of faith. Now, now typically in Paul's writing, um, faith and works uh, seem to be set in opposition to each other, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But, but this is a little different than that. This is work that is produced by faith. See, Paul is steadfastly opposed to, to legalism, which is the idea that, that salvation comes through works of the law. In fact, over the centuries, many have set Paul in opposition to James who wrote, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. The Thessalonians' faith was not a dead faith. Rather, it was a faith that produced work. Work that Paul doesn't actually even spell out here. Um, although in the coming verses, it becomes clear that they were at least doing the work of evangelism. But regardless, this is an example of not just Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but also verse 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Their work of faith was the outworking of their faith. The second trait of the Thessalonian church that Paul sees as assurance that they are truly believers, is their labor of love. Just like their work of faith, it is a labor that grows out of their love. 
Now, I don't know how much to make of this. Um, The word for labor is clearly a, a synonym for work, right? Yet it's a stronger word. Um, this is a notion of not only doing something, but it also involves some sort of hardship or, or difficulty. So, so, you know how some days work is just work and some days work is toil, right? Some days work is a real labor. That's the difference here. Um, this is hard work. This is more than just simply work. Now again, Paul, Paul doesn't even say what their labor is. Although sometimes he calls his own um, missionary endeavors, his own traveling and preaching the gospel, he calls that labor. And, and he indicates that their evangelistic efforts uh, that later in the next section that involved that same kind of preaching. That's what he's referring to, for example, in verse 8, when he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That sounded forth is what he's talking about, that labor of proclamation. And so the Thessalonians could have assurance in their own salvation because they were willing to sound forth the word of the Lord, even while facing hardship and difficulty. Our faith in Jesus Christ should produce work. Sometimes that faith doesn't stop there, but rather continues to grow to a a love, which produces labor at the toil of the spreading of the gospel, the furtherance of the kingdom of God for the glory of God. Paul has remembered their, their, in prayer, he has remembered their work of faith. He's remembered their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope, steadfastness of hope, this this steadfastness, this is an endurance that persists because of the hope of Christ's return, because of the hope of his eternal reign. Now, let me just put this this part right here. This triad here in verse 3, faith, love, and hope, that probably sounds a little bit strange in that order to us. Probably we're used to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But here, here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Paul is clearly putting the emphasis not on love like he does in 1 Corinthians 13, but on hope. What's the difference? Why is he emphasizing hope here and love there? Well, in Corinth, the church was facing a a plethora of internal conflicts. Remember, they were were suing each other. There was sexual immorality that was not only tolerated, but even, even celebrated. Some were coming to the Lord's Supper and they were feasting while others were going without. And so Paul exhorts the Christians in Corinth to love one another. They weren't loving one another. And so Paul spends a lot of time in that letter encouraging them, pushing them, exhorting them to love one another. But in Thessalonica, the saints were facing opposition and affliction from outside the church. Look down at verse 6. 
And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Jump down to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered in the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Opposition that the Thessalonians were facing was coming from without, coming from outside the church. And here Paul gives them assurance of their salvation by placing the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus Christ. And so the Thessalonians could sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. The Lord has promised good to us. His word our hope secures. He will our shield and portion be as long as life endures. And hope? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Hope is what gives us this steadfast endurance. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 says this, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is a sure and steady hope. And we're waiting. That's where we are right now. We're waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are waiting for our blessed hope hope. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the hope for which we wait. It's our hope. This hope gives us assurance, and thankfulness is rooted in this assurance It's also rooted in God's election. Thankfulness is rooted in God's election. Look at verse 4. Really, 4 and the beginning of verse 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Thankfully, their assurance isn't simply rooted in their faith, their love, and their hope. Rather, it's rooted in God's sovereign choice. 
Paul is writing to encourage them that while the, while the immediate cause of his thanksgiving is their work, their labor, and their steadfastness, the ultimate cause of his thanksgiving is God and God's election, his choice of them. And the fact that Paul thanks God for their election, for their, his choice of them, for their salvation, it shows that they, they contributed nothing to accomplish their own salvation. But instead they were objects of an unconditional divine act. God did this. He will say again in his second letter to them, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Again, he will say the same thing to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I don't, I don't know who originally said this, but I think it's absolutely true. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Many today reject the idea that God would choose, that God would choose some and not others. Or they reject this biblical doctrine in favor of something like an an independent self-determination. But the Bible's clear. Those words actually mean what they say. The fact that God would choose any of us I can stand here and look at you and say, I don't know why God would choose you. I'm not looking at anybody specific. Why would God choose Abraham? He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. That means that he was from the region of Babylon. Why would God choose him? He's a nobody. Why did he choose David to be king? Clearly. God chose David, even his own father. When he was told, hey, bring your sons together, I'm going to choose one of them to be the king. David wasn't one of them. You take care of the lambs, it's going to be one of these other guys. Why did he choose to save Paul? Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemned already. The fact that God would choose any of us at all. The fact that God would choose me. Or you. Is all of his grace. Because we stand condemned already, Jesus said. But in Christ, in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. The assurance of pardon 
that we so desperately need is found in the sovereign work of Jesus Christ. This is how this statement, whoever, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, this is how this can be true because it's rooted in what Christ does, not in what you do, not in what I do. And therefore, because it is rooted in what Jesus Christ has done, we can confidently say, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because it's all his work. The assurance that we have that our sins have been forgiven is rooted in the fact that God has called you. That he has said, you're mine. And because he has said, you're mine, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is the day for which we wait. And we are waiting. And we are praying with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord. Pray with me. Father, these things should not cause us to swell in pride, but rather to grow in thankfulness towards you. I pray that when we consider the truth of your word, that it would force us to worship. And that we wait. We wait until Christ returns and can, can destroy sin and death, permanently removing it, permanently getting it away from us, that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever that we might see our God and Savior face to face. Father, this is only possible through the work of Christ on the cross. And so we offer up our thanksgiving. We are thankful that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. We are thankful that He is passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he is seated at the Father's right hand, that he always lives to intercede for us. We are thankful that you have not left us alone, but have sent your Spirit to be with us, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Father, we are thankful that you have assembled us together with other saints that we might come to your house on the Lord's day and proclaim Christ's death until he returns. And we pray with John, come quickly, Lord. Father, as we come to the table, we are thankful for the body and blood of Christ. We are thankful for the sins that have been removed, for the removal of the sins. And we are thankful for the blood that has been shed the new covenant that has been created on our behalf to bring us into relationship with Christ. That our sins might be forgiven. Father, we are grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.